You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors, everyone. This is Rochelle Vanderzanden. I am here with Corey Janoff, fabulous co-host. There's uh, lots of things that change over time, and today we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how financial planning and money management and just how we talk and think about money changes from generation to generation. And that's not the only difference between us and our parents necessarily. There can be lots of differences like socioeconomic status. Maybe you're you know, a first-generation college graduate. There can be cultural differences and things like that. And sometimes parents and older folks like grandparents even can have great financial advice for us, but other times they may be looking at it through a different lens that's not super applicable for us the way that the economy is now, the tools that we have available, and all of those kinds of things. So we're going to talk a little bit about how planning has changed over the years and maybe even how it may change a bit in the future, which is not easy to predict, but it's important to realize that, you know, what our kids face, if we have kids, is going to be a little bit different than what we're experiencing as well. Um, Yeah, so we're going to just dive into a few different topics, think about you know, maybe some potential good advice we could get from our parents, maybe some that's less applicable and how we should focus on our own circumstances and just making sure that we're taking into consideration what's applicable for us before making decisions. Yeah, I think the change piece is the one thing that we can be assured of. There will absolutely be changes over time in your life and the the uh, resources available, retirement planning, investing, like, you know, just go back through history off the top of my head, you know, social security was created, I think in the great depression, um, to provide a safety net for folks. So that previously didn't exist. It's gone through several, uh, major overhauls and, and, and likely we'll see another major overhaul here before, uh, you know, 19, early, uh, early 2030s, excuse me, because um, they need to make some tweaks before the, the trust fund runs out here in about a decade. Um, like 401ks were introduced in the 70s and didn't really become prominent until, you know, the 80s or 90s. The limits initially were pretty small. IRAs, like Roth IRAs, didn't exist until the late 90s. Um, like there will be new types of accounts for, you know, potentially us more likely our, our children, uh, there'll be new tax laws. There'll be different ways of approaching things, different types of investment vehicles. So it's just going to be different. It it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's better or worse. It's just, it's just going to be a little different than what it used to be. Uh, but I do still think that you know, there's a few things that will hold true no matter what. You know, one, live below your means. Two, save a healthy portion of your earnings. You know, if you can, doesn't matter what generation you are, you know, you, you want to be saving at least 20% of your earnings. I guess that percentage could vary over time with longevity and, and expected retirement timelines and whatnot. You know, if you 
back in the day, the olden times, Rochelle, if you, you know, retired <laughs> at 60 and died at 63, you, you didn't really need to save a whole lot for retirement. But now if you want to retire at 60, you know, if you're a married couple and, and neither of you smoke, there's a, a good chance at least one of you, if not both of you are living into your 90s and, a, a, you know, a, a, a decent possibility that it could be late 90s or beyond. So, um, you know, we got a plan for 30 plus years of retirement where that's a pretty recent phenomenon. Absolutely. I think people, you know, in the olden days, as Corey says, <laughs> They worked longer. There, there wasn't really retirement like a long time ago. That, that didn't exist. It wasn't like, oh, at some age you just get to stop working and you get to sit on the couch and go travel and go on vacation and enjoy your grandkids. It was like you worked and worked and worked until you couldn't work anymore and then your kids took care of you. Like in the, you know, long time ago, that's how it worked. We're going to focus a little bit more on more recent generations starting, you know, probably around like World War II era with the silent generation which is for a lot of us probably grandparents. For me, it's my parents because they're old. But <laughs> I think the one thing we're going to talk about a little bit is just how people manage money, like just cash and savings and how they used credit. But my parents, for example, they were members of that silent generation. And I grew up in a household where like it was about cash, not necessarily cash in hand, but cash in the bank. My parents didn't use credit cards at all. And it was, you know, a point of pride for them that they didn't rely on credit and that you didn't spend money you didn't have, period. Because when they grew up, they didn't, there was no such thing as like a credit card, or at least that wasn't readily available. Maybe you could get a loan from the bank or something like that, but like personal credit wasn't really a thing. They, even their mortgage, like my parents took on a mortgage, they bought a home from a, a gentleman himself. They didn't use a bank. They did a private mortgage with this guy and like literally had a mortgage amortization schedule all worked up and everything and the payments, like everything was all lined up like a, a mortgage would be, but they didn't even use a bank. Like that's how old my parents are. How long was so, the <laughs> loan term? Was it like a five year, 10 year term? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it was five years. At, well, maybe it was. I know it was an $8,000 loan. They bought their house for $8,000 in like the early 60s. And I know that there was, you know, there was um, interest and things like that. I don't think it was crazy. Yeah, because I think the like the thirty year loan is a a, a somewhat Fairly recent phenomenon, phenomenon as yeah. well, and I mean for eight thousand bucks, that'd be would it be like a hundred bucks a month for? <laughs> I have years? no idea. Yeah, I have no idea. So it it's just very different. Like that is that is pretty far removed from how we think about and manage money now. I think for many of our listeners, they probably have baby boomer parents, which, you know, it, it started to evolve, especially with credit. Like credit was more readily available for baby boomers when they were starting to kind of come into their own and manage their own money and things like that. And they were more influenced by, you know, having things and being able to demonstrate that they had done well for themselves, that they had worked hard and that they were able to buy things and and show that they had done well for themselves. And it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like credit can be used as a tool, which is great. And so that's the first generation that kind of interchangeably used credit and cash. So you kind of see them using both of those things. Um, but I think homeownership was huge starting with maybe not starting with baby boomers, but definitely for baby boomers. Like that's one of the biggest ways for older Americans to grow wealth over time has been homeownership. You know, if you look at how much um, 
people basically own or like what their net worth looks like. It's basically like 70% of Americans 60 and older say that their home is their greatest asset. So it's not necessarily investment in retirement accounts. It's the house. And so that that kind of leads us into the next thing. Like, what does it mean to buy a house over generations? And how important has that been? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you read the news headlines and it paints a different picture than reality. Like, if you look at millennials, our generation, most of the listeners here, um, like our home ownership rates as a percentage of the total are on pace with historical generations. Like, you know, in your early, in your 20s, most people don't own homes. By the time you get into your 30s and 40s, those numbers go up. And, and yeah, housing prices are higher. It's become more challenging with student loans and other obligations to afford a house today. But at the same time, like our home ownership rate as a whole isn't that much different than, you know, Gen Xers, boomers, silent generation, et cetera. So, you know, I'm not too concerned there, but it is, it's definitely a different landscape today. Like you said, Rochelle, like it used to be, this is the American dream. You own the house, you have the white picket fence, you have the, the station wagon in the driveway. Um, you know, you drive to the lake for your vacations like that. That's what it, what it was. Um, and there was a lot of pride in owning your home. And I still think that it is somewhat true today, but if you're looking at it like right now, if you're in the market now for a house, it's tough. Like right now we're at like all time highs for median home price in relation to median income. Like I think today the median home price is over seven times the median household income. Um, and, and, and that just makes it more expensive. You know, it's, it's harder to buy a house when a larger portion of your income is going to paying for that house. Um, one, either you just can't afford it because it's too much or you can't afford the other things that you, you should or want to be doing because all your money's going to the house payment. Um, so it'll, it will be interesting over time. It goes in cycles. It goes in waves. Um, you know, I, I would expect either I don't think housing prices are coming down, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we, we, you know, see that ratio adjust a little bit over time as, uh, as income creeps up and maybe housing prices hold stagnant, but that's just me thinking out loud. Now for current homeowners, for those of you who own your home currently at a 3% mortgage rate, like your mortgage payment historically in relation to your income is like all time lows. So you're spoiled right now. <laughs> it, 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 so for, for the vast majority of people listening, they have locked in a low interest rate mortgage and, and that is saving you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year that can go towards other things like retirement savings, vacation, college savings, student loans, et cetera, that, you know, previous generations didn't have, you know, for the bulk of their accumulation years. Yep. I think the interest rates are huge. You know, like it, it's not just the price of the home, but part of it's like how quickly can you build equity in your home? Because that that's a big part of how you're building wealth if you do buy a home is that, you know, over time you owe less on your mortgage than you own in your home. And then, you know, if you wanted to sell your house, you have this big chunk of money that would be readily available to you if you did that. And that's where a lot of like older Americans wealth is concentrated is in that equity in their home. 
Um, when you have a 3% mortgage, you're totally building that equity, assuming that home prices continue to go up at least a little bit. You know, we're kind of taking some chunks out of that principle, especially as the, the mortgage ages. But it's harder when you have a much higher interest rate, and it also just takes a lot more of your resources. You know, a lot more of your monthly income is going into that mortgage in order to be able to pay for that interest. And and it's just harder to build equity that way. So, and and this is hopefully temporary like we don't know how temporary or like when rates will start to adjust and how much they'll start to adjust but it is very different right now than it was two years ago Um, and I think one reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit is that you know I have lots of clients that I talk to and I'm like it may not be the best time to buy a house like this like if you really really want to do this you can probably prioritize this and you can probably make this happen if that's really important to you then you know, you can make it happen. But don't do it because you automatically think that it is the thing that is financially correct for you to do. And I do think a lot of people hear that from your parents. Like, you have to buy a house. You have to buy a house. Like, you're wasting money on rent. This is how you build wealth over time. You buy a house. That's how you do it. And I think that it's not necessarily true in all cases for all people, especially depending on where you live. Like, geography can have a big impact on that. So it's just something to think about very carefully and make sure that it's the right decision for you based on what your wants and needs are, but also based on, you know, what makes sense financially. Yeah. That's really a small subset of the people who are, don't currently have a house and are looking to get into buying a home. Or I guess if you own your home and are looking to move, relocate, upsize, whatever. But yeah, it's uh, definitely an interesting, interesting time there. Another one that wasn't really an issue until now for people or you know this current generation is student loans like that's something that our parents generation just didn't have to deal with um uh, or at least a a note like a significant amount so but you know when you adjust for inflation it's not as crazy um as as the nominal uh numbers seem so like for example my dad graduated medical school in the late 70s and i believe he had about thirty thousand in student loan debt which you know sounds like nothing and you know when you think of the today figures but adjusted for inflation that's about 144,000 today so you know decent number still below average for med students today but not a, a crazy low figure um he also bought his first home in residency uh for i think around forty thousand dollars and again this is late 70s early 80s um and his initial salary though in residency was fifteen thousand a year so you know, the, the ratios aren't, aren't too crazy when you factor the inflation in, but the it is worse today. So student loans for him were about two times his income. The housing price was less than three times his income. Median today from graduating medical students is over 200000 of student loan debt. Median house costs about 430000 And the median salary for first-year residents, it varies geographically, but we'll call it close to 60000 per year could be more could be less depending on where you're at so today student loans are about are more than three times your income the house is more than seven times your income so it, it definitely is a bit more challenging like your student loan payment today is the equivalent of a mortgage um so you essentially would have two mortgages when you're trying to buy the house so it's not it's not just that you know homes are more expensive now that interest rates have come up it's uh it's more challenging but it's that in addition to also having to make this big student loan payment 
um, that's that's part of the majority of your lives when you when you come out of training. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that if if your parents aren't medical professionals, also it's kind of hard to understand like this transition from like medical school to residency and fellowship to then being an attending and and you know your wages are fairly modest, you know, when you're still in training. And it, it can be hard to accomplish some of those big things that maybe your parents expect of their doctor kids. <laughs> you know? But if you can continue to, you know, live like a resident for a few years out of training, um, mm-hmm. you know, save up a healthy down payment for the home, uh, get your retirement savings on track, or, you know, if you're doing PSLF, great. You know, those loans will be gone within a handful of years out of training. If you're not doing PSLF, you know, live like a resident, pay those loans off aggressively. And, and then we can, you know, move on with the the other objectives and, and savings goals. So there's, you know, multiple ways to approach it. Financial planning is, is unique to each individual. So there's no one size fits all strategy or recommendation here. Absolutely. I think one of the other big differences generationally is just retirement planning in general, partially because um, I think our parents and grandparents had some other resources available to them that we don't necessarily. And a lot of times we have to be more self-reliant when we're planning for retirement because we don't necessarily have a pension to fall back on or as much social security income or we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. So I have had literally clients tell me that their parents think that they're saving too much money, like for a long term. Like literally I've had clients come to me and be like, they say like 20% is like way too much and why am I saving 20% of my income? And it's like, (laughs) how are they complaining about your savings rate right now? (laughs) This seems ridiculous. But it, it is very different. You know, like if they didn't have to proactively save a bunch of money for retirement because they knew they had other resources or adequate resources that were outside of that, then it kind of makes sense that there's some generational differences. That being said, you know, I have lots of clients who also come to me and they're like, my parents are really encouraging me to save, you know, to be a good saver. So you you have parents on both sides of that spectrum and, and it's not necessarily the same across the board, obviously. I also come across like you know, my parents say I should pay off my mortgage before saving or pay off this debt, you know, talking about the debt aversion, like, yes. So, so it's again, not right or wrong. It's just differences in the way people approach things and and what's appropriate for you and your circumstances is, is, is likely different than what was appropriate for your parents in their circumstances at the same age and career stage as you. Yeah. And I think a lot of the tools that we have available to us are just different. You know, so we already mentioned pensions, you know, silent generation, baby boomers, lots of folks in those generations had pensions to rely on. Social security, like that was fairly new. It was set up. It was like, we can rely on this. And I think one thing is that there's a cap on social security. You know, you can't replicate $400,000 of income 
with Social Security. You just can't do that. So especially if there's, you know, a pretty significant economic difference between you and your parents, your parents may have been able to rely more on Social Security than you're able to just as a function of you making enough income that it's not going to adequately supplement your income or like replicate your income in retirement. And, And it won't really for anyone, but, you know, it's a lot closer when you're not a high income earner. So that can be a very big difference. But I think also you know, financial planning itself didn't really exist until fairly recently. Like we weren't necessarily proactively thinking about like what can we do to maximize like our financial gains over time and make sure, you know, we can retire as early as possible other than just like invest a bunch of money, um, which was something that was, you know, available to people, but in a very different way. Yeah, it was really fragmented. Like you had your accountant for tax purposes, you had a lawyer for legal stuff, you had a stockbroker for helping you invest because you like, you couldn't just go invest money on your own. It's like, you know, you used to not be able to book a plane flight without going through a travel agent. Um, you know, the internet changed a lot of things. I think, I don't know if E-Trade was the first company, but probably the most prominent to come out of the tech bubble of the late 90s. And it just completely changed the way people have access to investments. Like you used to have to call up your broker, request an order over the phone. They'd see if they could fulfill it. You know, there, there were high commissions on, on entering those orders. You know, you, you know, you know, I want to buy this stock. Well, you can't just, you know, buy a few dollars worth or a couple shares worth like you can on a Robinhood app today. You had to buy them in lots of a hundred, your commission, you know, you had to pay was probably 40, 50 bucks or more for larger orders. Um, the bid ask spreads on stocks. So like what you pay and what the the seller receives were were a lot wider. It just wasn't as fluid as it is, uh, today mutual funds, you know, you, you paid commissions on those to get into them. Capital gains taxes were a lot higher, um, than they are today. Like I think between world war two in the late 90s, you know, capital gains were 25 to 35%, the tax rate was. And there was a brief period in the 80s where I think it, it dropped to 20%. Um, and it wasn't until 1997 that the top rate dropped to 20%. And then it was briefly 15%. Now it's back up to 20 But that's, you know, the top, top marginal rate there. So between costs of transactions, um, the the taxes like you know there was a much bigger incentive to to buy and hold and and be a little more uh prudent mm-hmm. with with when and how you go invest that money um and you know it's changed with the internet of course but i think you know there's pros and cons you know i think there is a good a benefit to the buy and hold uh mentality you know you can leave your money to sit and invest um but it was mostly in individual stocks of quality companies that paid dividends. You know, now you know, index funds didn't really exist back in the, you know, until the two thousands more or less. I mean, they did, but not on a broad scale like they do today. So you couldn't just invest in the broad market uh, like you can now for just a few dollars. Like it, it wasn't really possible. Um, I think the competitive landscape has changed for, for corporate America, meaning it's, it's a lot more difficult to pick those quality companies to buy and hold on to. So your parents might be saying, oh, you need to buy these stocks, great company, yada, 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 where it's more risky now to do that. 
you know, you're probably better off just buying a broad low cost index fund or, or diversified mutual fund portfolio um, than trying to pick and choose individual stocks because it's like, you know, the average stock only trades for about 11 years on the stock market. The, the, the competition changes so rapidly. Most companies that are prominent today won't be prominent 10 or 20 years from now. Um, so again, not necessarily better or worse. It's just different in, in how it works. But back to, you know, the planning didn't really exist in the same form today, uh, or it, it didn't really exist back then. It was, again, more fragmented, um, maybe only for the ultra wealthy would have advisors who would, you know, oversee their broad investment portfolio. But now, you know, most people, especially for those of you listening, doctors, like, unless you're really into it and doing it yourself, the majority of you probably have and work with a financial advisor because that's just what you do. You need guidance and help with all this stuff and it's affordable. So mm -hmm. it's also because in some ways it's become more complicated. You know, I, I think things get more complicated over time. So obviously it's really helpful to have help. But, you know, one of the things that's changed is just the introduction of Roth accounts you know, Roth IRAs and then Roth deferrals into your 401k. And, you know, I think one thing that a lot of folks emphasize, especially for high income earners, is like pre-tax contributions, like reduce your taxable income, reduce your taxable income, reduce your taxable income. And I think it's partially because, you know, Roth accounts are fairly new, so it's hard to know exactly what the benefits of those will be long term because we don't have a long term to really look at with Roth IRAs. So, I mean, the big thing is like we're choosing to pay taxes now at a tax rate that you know, so you don't have to pay taxes later at a tax rate you don't know. Like we really don't know what tax rates will look like when we're retired. And so it can be really helpful to just have a chunk of money in a bucket where we don't have to worry about it. You know, we're, we're going to have probably quite a bit of money in pre-tax accounts. All of the money that your employer puts into your 401k, for example, will be pre-tax if they make contributions for you. Um, so if, you know, we can have some Roth money where we're just not automatically going to have to pay whatever the government tells us to pay, like that will be really helpful. The other thing is that all of those pre-tax accounts, like pre-tax IRA accounts, pre-tax 401k accounts have required minimum distributions. Like they won't happen until you're quite a bit older, probably 75, maybe even older, who knows, for people that are listening now. But Roths don't, you know, so we have to automatically take money out of all those pre-tax accounts, but we can leave that Roth money invested. So especially if we're trying to plan for like other folks inheriting wealth and things like that, these Roth accounts can be really helpful for that. And speaking of changes, so right now employer contributions are pre-tax, but starting in, I think they pushed it out to 2026, um, your catch-up contribution for age 50 and over, if you're over a certain income, it has to be on a Roth basis. Employer matching contribution will also have to be, I believe, on a Roth basis for certain incomes. I think incomes. it can be, oh, over certain income over levels. Over certain incomes. I, I, I need to refresh uh, before 2026, but uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that they've implemented that, which will just be a administrative fiasco for for companies but still oh my god yeah things things change <laughs> um things that but i do think the introduction of roth is is an amazing tool that will greatly benefit savers today like gen xers millennials are really the first generations to have access to roth accounts and will have a large pool of tax-free money available to them in retirement um 
you know, which will just stretch it further when you don't have to pay taxes on it. It'll also create challenges, you know, decades down the road for our government when they're not getting those tax dollars from retirees as we have an aging population and, um, you know, the, the tax revenue shifts more from current workers to distributions on pre-tax retirement accounts. Um, so it, it will be interesting. I, I would imagine we will see some policy changes over time. Um, in, in tax laws, social security specifically needs some, some improvements to plan for, for aging demographics. Same with Medicare or overall healthcare system. You know, we have people living longer, retirement's expensive, especially healthcare costs are expensive. And mm -hmm. yeah, there's a small subset of the population that's very well prepared and in very good financial shape, but, but a, a really good chunk that's just not. And we got to you know, be able to plan for that too. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think, you know, just circling back to a couple of things, we already talked about pensions a little bit, but, you know, just for some number references for you, right now, only 20% of current workers are covered um, by pensions. And, and the benefits are presumably smaller than they were for older generations. For example, in Oregon, where Corey and I live, if you worked as a public employee, like a teacher, firefighter, something like that, starting in 1980 and then retiring in 2010, so you worked over 30 years, your income in retirement would be more than it was when you were working. And that, that kind of pension structure just doesn't really exist anymore. You know, like we we can hope to maybe replicate a portion of our income as a retiree with a pension if one is available to us, but not the way that it used to work. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of states have done away with their state pensions or completely changed them because they realize, wait a second, we got to pay all these old people a bunch of money when they're not working And they're anymore. living way longer than we thought. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this, this math doesn't, doesn't work out. So like there's been some states that have literally declared bankruptcy and said, we can't afford to pay these pension benefits. We're, we need to overhaul it. And I mean, you've seen, depending on what state you live in, it may, you may uh, uh, you know, be able to recognize um, those events, but it's, it, is, uh, it is a big challenge to provide a guaranteed income stream for folks. And that's where companies and, and, and governments have gotten away from doing that. And it's shifted. The onus has been shifted more towards the individual. The problem is we're not the most responsible <laughs> humans. Uh, you know, it was great when you, you know, 20% of your income was withheld from your paycheck to go towards social security and the pension contribution. And you were saving a healthy amount and the employer matched it and it worked out great. Now, you know, 6% goes to social security. The employer matches that. And, you know, they might do three or 4% to your 401k. Um, if but, you put money in. Yeah. Usually. But the, <laughs> but the onus is ultimately on you now to save for retirement. We have less reliable safety nets in place, which I do uh, think will have to change to some degree. Um, you know, Right now, Congress can't agree on anything, but, you know, selfishly for all those old timers in Congress, you know, it's, they're going to need, you know, those safety nets built in, um, for their generations and then future generations too. So I, 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 I would expect we see some ultimately some policy changes and maybe new, 
either expanded social security or, or additional things like social security to help supplement retirement income for for people because yep. i think part of like the secure act 2.0 was like working in some automatic contributions and things like that to 401ks like hey we're we're gonna have you auto enroll people and they have to opt out so there's some small policy changes like that that have happened but i do think it, it probably needs to be bigger yeah, like auto enroll at twenty percent, like type of thing, and <laughs> yep. it's you know make it mandatory for a certain number of years. I don't know. There's a lot of things that we, if Rochelle and I were in charge, could change. <laughs> I'm think. glad I'm not though. To be yeah, clear, I don't want to be in charge. <laughs> no, no one wants to be in charge. Well, obviously, some people do. Anyway, yeah, I think the big thing is definitely longevity planning. You know it. If we're used to retiring at age 70 and living for five years, that's one thing. If we all want to retire at 60 and live for 30 years, that's an entirely different thing. It's just different. I want to retire at 50 and live for 50 years. Sounds fun. Love it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Got to yes, save up. Expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of longevity annuities, um, I think used to be more popular not as popular, maybe gaining more popularity. It, it's going back to that safety security piece, you know, that those older generations valued that guaranteed income stream that annuities could provide. And when interest rates came down, um, you know, I think the insurance companies offering them aren't able to provide as robust of annuity benefits. So they become a little less appealing, but, um, you know, I think, I think that's uh, another one where I'll see a lot of clients that inherit assets from their parents and they inherit like a handful of annuities. I'm like, what are all these annuities doing? <laughs> and like, I've never even heard of some of the companies that they're through. So um, I don't know if I necessarily see clients' parents recommending they buy annuities to their kids, but, uh, but yeah it's something it's just, you may get from your parents obviously. yeah you might inherit <laughs> one from your parents or you know could be worth looking into if you do want something that's a little more guaranteed in retirement than uh, that crazy stock market that isn't guaranteed yep yep i think ultimately one of the biggest changes that has happened is just how we talk about money and whether we talk about money you know, so I think for a lot of older generations, it just wasn't a polite dinner table conversation to discuss money. And you may get some kind of down low advice from your parents, you know, after a couple of drinks and, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe we we get a little bit more feedback from them in certain situations, but it just wasn't something that was openly discussed. And I do think, you know, millennials, Gen Z folks, Lots of people are having more open conversations about money, about salary, about, you know, what they're doing with their money, how they're investing, whether they're investing, you know, how expensive it is to buy a home. Like, I think we love complaining about how expensive everything is, something we're good at. But <laughs> I think we can learn from other people's experiences. So if you can get your parents to talk a little bit about their experience with money, I think that can be really helpful to people if, if that's not something that you openly discuss. Yeah, the more we can talk about money, the more comfortable of a topic it is. I think the easier it'll be to tackle a lot of these things. But yeah, absolutely. Financial planning. It'll change over time. It's unique to each individual. So as well-meaning as your parents or your friends are when they give you recommendations or suggestions to, uh, pertaining to your financial circumstances, they're basing 
those recommendations on their own personal world experiences and the lens that they view the world through, which is different than your lens and your experiences and your circumstances. So, um, while a lot of it might be great and, and excellent advice for you, you know, you, you just gotta, don't just blindly follow something because it's your parents that, that said it, you know, is this appropriate for me? Is there something else I should be doing? Um, and, uh, and yeah. Yep. You just have to carefully make decisions based on your reality, you know, and, and that's true for most things, not just finances. Um, and then just be prepared to adapt as things change. So with financial planning, we talk about this a lot. It's not like a set it and forget it thing. You're going to have to revisit it over time and understand that things may be different for your kids than it is for you. So, you know, keep that in mind down the road when you're making some specific recommendations for them that may not be applicable or giving them advice. But there's lots of things that if you do have kids, you can help with them, like just to get them set up, you know, by starting maybe small investment accounts for them early and things like that. I think we have a lot of clients who come to us, you know, with accounts that their parents started for them that were relatively small. And and now, you know, it's given them a great head start. And so even if we don't necessarily know exactly what things are going to look like for them, you can give them a little boost if you're able to, which is very cool. Yeah, if there's anything you want to do to help your kids out, Rather than give them advice, just, you know, when they're born, open up an investment <laughs> give account. Them money. Start, yeah, start throwing a hundred bucks a month into it. Like over 60 years, if you do that, let's see, what's the math here? Start Ooh, I like it. at, this isn't great for podcast format, but let's say uh, your financial calculator, Corey. Yeah. Let's say if we're putting a hundred bucks a month in and we do that for 60 years, <laughs> that'll be a million dollars. Boom. Mm -hmm. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> now, not enough for them to retire on, but it definitely gives them a good jump start. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So obviously, you know, we're just going to think carefully about our decisions before we make them. That's mm -hmm. the bottom line with almost every episode that we record. <laughs> there we go. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the affinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.